Chapter 1 Though I admit it's not much like Homer's idea of Hades. I should think not. Just look at those stars. Well, we've argued the point all day long and hardly got any further. Shall we leave it for the moment, my dear Socrates, and agree to differ? You can't talk Cowan and me out of our idea that we've somehow been switched from our normal terrestrial setup into another, which is just as physical and secular, but whose dimensions of time and space don't happen to square with ours. After all, it's not so very different here. This chair feels solid enough. The fire's nice and warm this frosty night. Your good wine, Socrates, couldn't go down better. And the stars I can see out of your window look perfectly familiar, if brighter than usual. The archdeacon, on the other hand, sticks to his opinion that this place is a kind of supernatural anteroom where we wait about for our summons to the last judgment. Though he doesn't rule out the possibility, more flattering for him than us, that he's dreaming it all and will presently wake up in his parsonage in Surrey. As for Dr. Schmidt, he keeps an open mind. What we're more or less agreed on is that our arrival here arose out of an experiment that didn't come off, or went off rather too well. It's a pity we can't remember quite what happened. Well, I certainly remember saying it was madness to muck about with the electron like that, as if the H-bomb weren't enough. Perhaps our disappearance, if you prefer that word, We'll teach a few of our backroom boys a lesson. But let's drop the subject and turn to something pleasanter. We may be displaced persons, but it's a tremendous consolation to find you with us, Socrates of all people. My dear friends, the catastrophe which dispatched you is a godsend for me. You couldn't be more welcome. It's over 23 centuries since I retired to this place, whatever you choose to call it, and all this knowledge has been piling up in your world. I've heard plenty about your wonderful discoveries and even picked up some of the jargon, but understood little or nothing. Now I have the lucky chance by becoming your pupil of learning from the best and latest masters. Only I beg you to be patient with my ignorance, remembering that I am in effect a child who is younger than you by millenniums. <laughs> You're too modest, Socrates. It is we who are privileged to meet you, the great pioneer. And besides underestimating yourself, you overestimate us. For one thing, though I'm an astronomer and really know nothing about philosophy and art and ethics, I doubt whether there's been any great or certain progress in these things since your day. What do you think, Archdeacon? Well, philosophers still seem to be asking the kind of questions you used to ask, Socrates, or, more often, have given up trying to answer them. And certainly if we moderns have bettered the Odyssey or the Parthenon or the Hermes of Praxiteles, I've still to hear about it. As for wisdom and virtue, I doubt, to put it mildly, whether the proportion of good men to bad and of wise to foolish is any greater now than it was in the Athens of Pericles. In fact, many would say we've gone back, for instance, in politics and religion. But your science... I was coming to that, Socrates, in pure and applied science, in our knowledge of the world, and in our use of that knowledge to control the world, 
the Z-bomb. Well, leave aside the question of control. At any rate, in our knowledge of the universe about us, there has, particularly during recent centuries, been a huge increase. This is certainly not because we're cleverer than you, Socrates, but because we've hit on methods of observation and verification and techniques of mathematical analysis which have made for very rapid accumulation of knowledge. The credit doesn't belong to us as individuals, but rather to our increasing division of labour and to our giving up speculation for empiricism, so that even a quite stupid specialist can, by starting where his teachers leave off, push a little further into the unknown. Yes, my dear Socrates, of one thing we moderns may reasonably be proud, and that's our discovery, however incomplete, of what the world is really like. This is wonderful news. To know the universe, however incompletely, by Zeus, what an achievement. And I, poor ignoramus, never got anywhere near to knowing that tiny fragment of it called man. Well, like a good child starting school, I'm ready to forget the tales of the nursery and learn the wisdom of men. Let me give you an instance. Many of us in ancient Greece like to think of the universe as full of life and divinity, of the sun and stars as visible gods, and of the blue sky as the heaven of the blessed. We looked up into the heavens at once theological and astronomical, and the further from us they were, the more lively and divine they were likely to be. Physical height went with spiritual status. All childish imaginings which, so they tell me, are now completely disproved. You distinguished gentlemen have the facts, and I shall let no such fancies stand in their way. In your time, Socrates, such beliefs were plausible enough, but I'm afraid anyone who held them nowadays would invite, not, it's true, a dose of hemlock, but something quite bad enough psychological treatment from Dr. Schmidt here, private treatment if he were rolling in money, institutional if he weren't. Sir Hugo likes to have his little dig at us. To speak plainly, a man holding such opinions would be thought mad. Let's say eccentric, though probably quite harmless. Anyhow, in most interesting case, I remember a patient of mine. If I may interrupt, Dr. Schmidt, I think before we go any further, we ought to give Socrates some rough idea of the universe we moderns find ourselves in. I should be very grateful, Sir Hugo, but don't forget I'm a baby in these things. Come down off your professional high horse and be as chatty and informal as you can. Otherwise, I'll never understand you. Very well, then. Try to think of the Earth as a tiny spinning globe sweeping out yearly a great circle a couple of hundred million miles wide about the Sun, which is big enough to hold more than a million Earths and made of very hot material, far too hot, I assure you, to support any form of life. The rest of the planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and some others observed since your time, Socrates, move like the Earth but at different speeds and in different orbits around the Sun, and the whole collection we call the solar system. 
But collections hardly the word. It's a real whole. For not only did the planets doubtless come from the sun in the first place, they've never left it. They're the sun's own growth or development, the petals of a star that has burst into bloom. Or, to be more prosaic, think of this expanded star as an egg broken into a frying pan, with the sun as the yolk and the planets as bubbles of various sizes in the white. Better still, imagine the bubbles swimming round and round the pan so swiftly that they become circles. You make the universe sound most appetizing. That's only the first course. You must now think of this huge rotating fried egg as no more than an almost invisible bubble in the white of another rotating fried egg called the galaxy. Now, to give you any true idea of the size of the galaxy is almost impossible, but uh, let me try. It contains many thousands of millions of stars comparable with our own and the nearest of them is millions of miles away. The centre of the whole revolving system is thousands of times more distant still. My head's swimming too. Now for the third course. Our galaxy itself is only one of millions of visible galaxies or nebulae, to say nothing of those that no doubt lie beyond the range of our telescopes. In short, Socrates... Our seemingly vast and central and all-important Earth is really an infinitesimal dust grain which happens at the moment to exist in an immense universe that is certainly neither made for the dust grain's convenience nor likely to worry about the dust grain's fate, to say nothing of the fate of men who are this dust grain's own dust. The human needle is quite lost in the cosmic haystack. And yet, as you've shown quite well, it's acutely aware of the haystack, and in that sense contains it. A curiously compressible haystack, I must say, or else a curiously capacious needle, and one which demonstrates that it has found, rather than lost, its bearings. It can only be your admirable modesty which makes you gloss over the fact. 